0: Thank you so much for being at Hope Church this morning. I am honored to be able to talk to you today. My name is Noah. I am a part of the staff team here at Hope. Uh, I get to work here all week long with Pastor Ashley. She's my boss, and she is amazing. Let's honor Pastor Ash this morning. It's Pastor Appreciation Month, if you didn't know. And man, I am so thankful for our pastor. She hears from God, and she leads us through the calling of, uh, that God has placed on her life. And she gives us life by hearing from Jesus and helping us in our relationship and our walk with him, get closer to him. I have found so much life and freedom being pastored by Pastor Ashley. And I appreciate and honor her so, so much. If you'd like to find a way to honor our pastor, write her a card, um, tell her that you love her, something. Honor her uh, if you think about it. And we have prayer cards in the kiosk out in the foyer. There's just some practical ways that you can pray for our pastor. I know that she loves and appreciates it so much when people are talking to Jesus on her behalf. It means a lot to her, and Jesus listens to you, and he cares what you have to say. So honor uh, our pastor with your prayers. she loves it. There's cards in the kiosk. Grab one on your way out. One more time, let's give it up for Pastor Ash, just to make sure she hears us. We are so thankful for her. Well, um, I get to talk to you about a ghost story today, which is just my story of who Jesus is to me. One of the things that I have discovered about myself working with Pastor Ash and the team is that I love to learn something, to dig into it, to figure it out, and then to be able to share it with other people, because I get all excited about it, and I want to share it with people, and I love doing it. So uh, before I get to the ghost story in the Bible, I just want to tell you that me and my wife had our very first child, our son, our love, Oliver. He's adorable. And that's my wife. She's a superhero. She's incredible. I love her so much. She gave birth to a human. And if you know what that's like, wow. I was like, how could I have ever done this to you? You're my hero. I love you so much. Anything you need, anytime, you've got it, baby. I love you. I love you, Rochelle. You're amazing. Um, so there's Oliver in our family. Shout out to SC Photography. Go to her for your pictures. Sam Crane's incredible. And this is my son in his beautiful face. He's so cute. I love it. It's a wild experience being a dad, and I've found like I've uh, learned so much about who Jesus is to me. If he is my father, man, I am learning so much about his love for me as I love my son. He's perfect. He's beautiful. He's the best baby in the world. Sorry, but my baby is better than yours, and I love him to death. He's so cute. Everything he does is beautiful, except for his diapers. He's amazing, and I love him so much. And he can't earn my love. He can't earn my pride. He just is here in my arms, and I love him, and I'm proud of him, and he hasn't done anything. He's five weeks old today. And if that's my love for my son, what is God's love like for me? which is so much bigger and better. I can't earn his love. I can't earn his pride. I can't do anything. And still he chose to love me. And the only thing that my son can do really is like eat, sleep, poop, cry, you know, and all of those things require life from me and effort from me. And I give those things to him. I soothe him. We clean him. We feed him. We change him. We put him to sleep. All of these things are our life into him having life. And we love him so much. It doesn't take from us. It's our honor. It's our pleasure. We love being in relationship with him. And what I've learned is that God's love for me is like that, but better. I can't earn it. In fact, I rejected his love, but he still gave it to me. You know, and I can't make him accept me. I don't deserve to be accepted, but he went a step further and he said, I choose you. I want you. He picked me and he knew everything that I would ever do wrong and everything that would separate from him. But still, Jesus My father, he chose me. He saved me. He paid for everything so that I could be in relationship with him. God is love. He wanted someone to love. And he said at the beginning, he's like, I want a Noah in the flesh so I can love him. He decided to make me, specifically. In Song of Songs, I love the verse that says, I am the one, me, I am the one who brings him bliss. I have found favor in his eyes. Wow, what an incredible love. Pastor Ash defined these ghost stories in our series as who is Jesus to you? Well, he loves me. And it's a way that's hard to understand. It's a way that I can't like wrap my mind around, but man, does he love me. I can't explain it, but I know that Jesus loves me. I used to think like, who am I to deserve his amazing love? He knows who I am. He knows what I've done. He knows how much I struggle sometimes. How can you know me? You, how can you love me? when you know me so well. You're big, and you're perfect, and you're amazing. But recently, during an opportunity, Pastor Ash brought the prayer team down, and she said, if you need prayer for anything, come down. And I came down for prayer. I don't remember what I asked for, but someone was praying for me, and they said, God loves you, and he trusts you. It's like, how can you trust me, God? You know what I've done. You know who I am. How do you trust me? How can I, I can't wrap my mind around that. And he said, you're right. I do know who you are. I know who you are because I made you. I know who you really are. And because of me, that is who you are. That's how I see you. I see you perfect and blameless and not guilty but free. You are the center of my love. You're my favorite. I trust you. You are the one who brings me bliss. And that's an amazing, amazing love that I feel for my Father. And it's not just for me. I'm not here to tell you how amazing I am and to talk myself up. But I'm saying this message is for you too. I'm here to relay the message that he gave to me is also for you because you are perfect and blameless and innocent. He knows who he made you to be. He made you on purpose. He made you specific. He likes who you are. He likes the way that he made you. You're his favorite. You're unique and you're beautiful and he loves you. None of that love is conditional on anything. Believe it, receive it, Is yours you don't have to do anything or clean up your life or stop that addiction or make a big confession or follow specific rules of do's and don'ts it's a gift and it's available to us any of us all of us anytime all we have to do is receive it and you might hear this and think it's really hard to believe maybe you're thinking about your past what you did what you said who you hurt what you should have said what you should have done maybe you're too far gone you messed up too much this true truth might be true for someone else, but how could it be true for you? And if you're thinking any of those things, you're exactly who I'm talking to today. The further you think you are from this truth and God's love and what he has for you, the more this truth might be for you. And if you're sitting here on the other side of that coin and think you're better than all the people who think that I'm too far gone for Jesus's love, maybe this truth and this message is for you the most. So, Everyone, listen to what God has to say to you because he's speaking to you. And it's not me and it's not my words and it's not my ideas, but it's God's words to you. And he, I get to be used by him and I'm honored to tell you about a ghost story. So this is where we find ourselves. Is God this good or is he not? At a fork in the road, and you might've heard about the narrow gate and the wide gate found in Matthew. Enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I was taught, I think as a child, and maybe many of you have, that the wide gate is like where we all find ourselves. When we're born, we're all in the wide gate. It's like a highway to hell paved with drugs, sex, and money, and it's terrible, but we're all there, and you have to decide to go to the narrow gate, and you can only get through the tiny narrow gate if you're like perfect and pure and obedient and faithful and a really good person right Jesus says strive to enter it and i heard this in the bible and i heard this from my sunday school teachers and i think i internalized it as meaning something very different than what jesus meant it to be you know the choice that we find ourselves in now is that choice wide gate narrow gate but the way i thought that it was wide and narrow was like good or evil right worldly or christian but really this gate this choice is our efforts, or what Jesus has done. The wide easy gate is our religion, our self-righteousness. It's us trying to be good. And the narrow gate is Jesus's finished works and trusting him for our salvation, our self-righteousness or his grace, our guilt or his forgiveness. Which is more powerful? Which do you choose to put your faith in? So I'd like to look at a ghost story from the life of Jesus. And I'm amazed, looking at all these ghost stories the past couple of weeks, how much Jesus's life on earth paints a picture and points to all of it being a metaphor for his grace. All of what Jesus does seems to spit in the face of religion and self-righteousness and trying really hard and points to grace and trust in Jesus. And before I tell the story, one more thing for the context to set this story up. I think we hear these stories, and I know I did as a kid, like the Pharisees are these people. They were religious scholars. They worked at the temple. They knew the whole Bible. They knew all the rules. And we see them, or I saw them, as like hypocritical, power-hungry, evil people who used organized religion for their own gain. And they probably were and definitely did some of those things. But the more important parallel to get us to relate a little bit closer to them is that they were just people who were trying to earn their salvation— through their own works, through following the rules and trying really, really hard to be good. They were more focused on what they did, what they didn't do, doing right and wrong and themselves than on the person of Jesus and relationship to him. And that is what Jesus preached against so much when he was here on earth. We're not that far removed from him. We all have this tendency as people to try to be good on our own, to fix things on our own, to feel good about ourselves and make up for what we've done. So let's take a look at this ghost story in the context of all of that in John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. From Galilee, Jesus returned to Jerusalem to observe one of the Jewish feasts inside the city near the Sheep Gate. Tell your neighbor, the Sheep Gate. There's a pool called in Aramaic, the House of Loving Kindness, surrounded by five covered porches. Tell your other neighbor, five covered porches. Hundreds of sick people were lying under the covered porches, the paralyzed, the blind, the crippled, all of them waiting for their healing. For an angel of God periodically descended into the pool to stir the waters, and the first one who stepped into the pool after the waters were swirled would be instantly healed. Among the many sick people lying there was a man who had been disabled for 38 years. Tell somebody, 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that the man had been crippled for a long time. He said to him, Do you truly long to be well? The sick man answered, sir, there's no way I can get healed, for I have no one to lower me into the water. When the angel comes, as soon as I try to crawl to the edge of the pool, someone else jumps in ahead of me. But Jesus said, stand up, pick up your sleeping mat, you will walk. Immediately he stood up, he was healed. So he rolled up his mat, and he walked again. Now Jesus worked this miracle on the Sabbath. When the Jewish leaders saw the man walking along carrying a sleeping mat, they objected and said, what are you doing carrying that? Don't you know it's the Sabbath? It's not lawful you. For you to carry things on the Sabbath. He answered them, The man who healed me told me to pick it up and walk. What man? They asked, Who is this man who ordered you to carry something out on a Sabbath? But the healed man couldn't give them an answer, for he didn't yet know who it was, since Jesus had already slipped away into the crowd. A short time later, Jesus found the man at the temple, say, at the temple, and said to him, Look at you now you are healed walk away from your sins so that nothing worse will happen to you. Then the man went to the Jewish leaders to inform them. Hey, by the way, it was Jesus who healed me. Man, I love this story. There is so much imagery in this story, and what I loved to do was research this and dive into what do all of these abstract details mean? I practiced this morning. I told John to repeat all those words, and he laughed at me. He's like, these words mean nothing. And I'm like, that's the point, John. They mean something. Let me tell you about it. And I preached my message to him. So let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and break down what do all of these details mean? What is Jesus trying to tell us besides he's a great guy who healed a sick guy and disappeared and said, hey, you're well. Don't sin anymore because it means a lot more than that. I'm super excited about it. So first one, let's break it down. From Galilee, Jesus returned to Jerusalem to observe one of the Jewish feasts inside the city. Near the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called an Aramaic, the House of Loving Kindness, it's surrounded by five covered porches. The Sheep Gate, first thing, is the place where they led the sheep into the temple to be slaughtered, to be a sacrifice, to be a temporary payment for our sins because for thousands of years, the Israelites had to make a way to atone for what they had done wrong, to be right in the sight of God temporarily so the blood of an animal would cover them for a while so that they could relate to God and be right with him and avoid his judgment and punishment. So Jesus is saying, here's the sheep gate. I am... The new sheep, I am the lamb that will be slain to cover your sins and not just cover them temporarily, but take them away and restore you into relationship with God forever if you receive my blood. Once and for all, I am the lamb that was slain. And the pool was called the house of loving kindness near the sheep gate. Jesus, in his loving kindness, died as a sacrificial lamb to pay for all of our sins once and for all. And the pool was surrounded by Five covered porches. Again, no coincidence that all of these details are in the same story. Five covered porches in the Bible, the number five represents the law. There were five books in the Torah, which is the Jewish, the first five books of the Bible. In the Torah is found the Ten Commandments, which are don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Rules and religious rituals and laws meant to keep people on the straight and narrow, trying really hard to be good people, living righteous with their God. But the law, the Torah, the five covered porches, it brings death. Paul, he was a a religious guy in the New Testament. He wrote Romans, and he knew the law better than anybody. He had probably the whole Bible up to that point memorized. He was an amazing, educated man, and he said about the law, I once lived without a clear understanding of the law, but when I heard God's commandments, sin sprang to life and brought with it A death sentence. The commandment was intended to bring life, but brought me death instead. What does everybody want to do if someone says, Don't push that big red button? Right? You want to push the button. The law gives sin the power of death. This is what I mean. The law shows us our own shortcomings that we cannot possibly keep the whole law by ourselves. We cannot be good enough in our own strength. But we still try and we try. We pat ourselves on the back for doing a good job and having a great day. And then we feel really bad when we have a bad day and we don't keep the law because it's all based on our actions and trying to do the right thing. But opposite the law is Jesus. And Jesus is the healer and he brings life. And Matthew had said that, evening the people brought to him many who were demonized and by Jesus only speaking a word of healing over them. They were totally set free from their torment and everyone who was sick received their healing. In doing this, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. He put, himself, he put upon himself our weaknesses, and he carried away our diseases and made us well. So he took the sin and shame law, and he brought us life instead. And I love all of that is in the first two verses of the story. So let's unpack some more. Verse number three, hundreds of sick people were lying under the covered porches, the paralyzed, the blind, the crippled, all of them waiting for their healing for an angel of God periodically descended into the pool to stir the waters. And the first one who stepped into the pool after the waters were stirred would be instantly healed. So here they were, hundreds of sick people lying around a pool of loving kindness next to a sheep gate under these covered porches of the law right next to the temple. And the temple was the place where God's presence lived. And all of these sick people, instead of being with Jesus in his presence and relationship with him, are sitting, waiting under the law for their healing, just outside of the only person who has solutions for their pain. And they're stuck under the law, trying and waiting to be healed by doing the right thing, by their own righteousness, while relationship with God and trusting him is right. There, in the temple, some people think that verses three and four might not have actually been in the actual story, but it doesn't change the meaning of this ghost story. And we'll come back to it in a little bit. Verses three and four, and what that can mean. Verse five says, "Among the many sick people lying there was a man who had been disabled for thirty-eight years. Thirty-eight years. Does anybody know how many years the Israelites wandered in the desert?" 40 years, which sounds like the wrong answer because I just said 38. That's what I thought too, 40 years, right? But this verse references Deuteronomy and in Deuteronomy it says, the people wandered for 38 years while they waited for the generation who did not believe who God says he was to die off. God made a promise to the Israelites. Him promised them the promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey is an amazing reality that they could live in and the people who heard him said, this is too good to be true. You are not this amazing. You don't have the power to do this. You can't do this. And the Israelites had to wait 38 years for those people who did not believe that God was who he says he was to die off before they could step into the promised land, which was representative of another painting for our relationship with Jesus, where he broke that separation and said, you can have relationship with me. I want to know you. I want to talk with you, which the Israelites never had, but it was representative of the promised land. So 38 years they wandered in death. And this man was stuck, crippled, for 38 years in his best efforts, trying to be good enough. Verse 6 says, When Jesus saw him laying there, he knew that the man had been crippled for a long time. Jesus said, Do you truly long to be well? Pastor Ash talked a couple weeks ago about words of knowledge. So Jesus, through his relationship with the Holy Spirit, he knew what this man's condition was. So he knew that the man had been crippled for a long time. And what he said could be translated differently than how we read it in English because the Bible was written and not in English and translated to English, so there's different translations. One way that it could be translated is, are you convinced that you are already made whole? The Greek there isn't actually the future tense. Want to be healed, but really indicates something already accomplished. Jesus was saying to this man, Are you ready to abandon how you see yourself now and receive this healing that I have for you? It's not by works that we can be healed. And so, at verse 4, going back to the, you know, getting into the water when the angel stirs a thing at the right times, if that's in there, it really points to this same idea, which was like the old way of doing it and killing sheep, and trying really hard, and keeping the law, was a transactional relationship between us and God. And this is saying if you get into the right place at the right time before anyone else, and you do it all, and get all your ducks in a row, then you can be healed. But only one person at a time, because it's not for everybody. It's just the people who get it right. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. That's not how this works anymore. I have a gift for everybody. I have this relationship for anyone who receives and believes in what I'm saying. This is not the Old Testament, not the Old Covenant, but something new I'm doing, something new. Are you ready to stop looking at yourself and your sickness and your sin and guilt and shame and look to me instead and trust me to make you heal? Are you ready to be whole? But the sick man, he responds much in the same way we do. With his own efforts, the reasons he comes up short, he's blaming people around him for his own shortcomings, he says, I'm doing the best I can, what more could I have done? So verse 7, he says, sir, there's no way I can get get healed, for I have no one to lower me into the water. When the angel comes, as soon as I try to call the end of the pool, someone else jumps in before me. You know, a lot of times we think like, I I think this way because that's how I was raised, or I behave this way because of my environment. I do these things because of uh, my economic status, or I have these triggers because of these traumas, and those can be real things that you're really looking at, just like this man was really crippled, but blaming other people, blaming other circumstances, it doesn't help us, it doesn't heal us, it doesn't get us anywhere into our future. It actually stops us from being able to take ownership for what we can do, and the only thing we can do to find healing is through relationship with Jesus, finding wholeness in relationship with him. And Jesus is so full of loving kindness in this pool of loving kindness, he gives us what we don't deserve, so he ignores the man's blame game, and he said, and He offers him some ownership. He says, you do something about it. It's not other people's fault. It's not other people's or other circumstances that made you this way, but I want to give you A step of faith. He cuts right to the matter and he says, It's not their decision, it's your decision. Will you believe? It's your decision. Nobody else's fault, nobody else's problem. Do you believe that God has healed you? Do you believe that He loves you, that He's proud of you, that you're His masterpiece? It's what you believe. Not what other people believe or what other people say or their opinions, but what you believe that determines who you become and who you are changes how you live and experience your life. We do out of who we are. And do you believe that you're clean and free and healed even when you look down at yourself and you see dirty or broken or sick? Because I know that when Jesus said to this layman, are you ready to abandon your sickness? And behold, he probably looked at his legs as he laid on the ground and think, yeah, but the truth is, look, I can't walk. They are broken. So how can we, as logical, sane, normal people, look at one thing and call it something else? How can we look at something dirty and call it clean? Or something sick and call it healed? If we can't do it, then it has to be someone or something else. It's Jesus, and it's what he has already done. He said to the man in the present tense, are you ready to be whole? Because Jesus had already accomplished what he's offered to us, because by faith we receive what we can't do and what we can't see. So when we look at an addiction, we can say, I'm free because of who Jesus says that I am. Right now, I am free. And when we look at sickness, we can say, I'm healed because of what Jesus has done for me. When we look at all of our mistakes and guilt, we can say, I am free because Jesus took my punishment. Right now, even though I see something different in my natural reality. So in verse 8, Jesus says to him, stand up, pick up your sleeping mat, and you will walk. Immediately, he stood up, he was healed, so he rolled up his mat and walked again. Now Jesus worked this miracle on the Sabbath which is another picture because on the Sabbath, if you carried a sleeping mat, like this man did, you could be stoned to death for this crime. That's how extreme these religious rituals were. The Sabbath was a day of rest, and if you so much as carry a bed mat, you should be stoned to death. You broke the rules. And this is another picture. Because the bed mat was meant for rest. And if this man, by what Jesus told him to do, picked up his bed mat, picked up his rest. He carried it with him because the Sabbath isn't a rule of a day of rest. It's a rest in Jesus. It's a representation that says you can't earn your salvation. So once a week, I want you to take a break and stop working and rest in me. Just relate, no more work, just relate with me. And he told this man, carry this rest in your relationship with me, with you, because you're not subject to rules and laws and the Sabbath, you're going to be stoned because you carried your mat, you're subject to relationship with resting in me. Saved by faith and not by works. I think we spiritualize that word, works, a lot. Works is just anything we do to feel good about ourselves anything to try to make up for what we've done or to make God like us more or maybe to forget about the mistakes we made. They're just works. One time a crowd asked Jesus in John chapter six said, we want to perform God's works too. Like what can we do in our strength? We want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. The only work he wants is for you to believe people's hope. Jesus already did the work and then he said, it's done. So back to our story in verse 10, when the Jewish leaders saw the man walking along carrying the sleeping mat, they objected. Of course they did. You're just doing the wrong thing. What are you doing carrying that? Don't you know it's the Sabbath? It's not lawful for you to carry things on the Sabbath. And he answered them, the man who healed me told me to pick it up and walk. He's like, who are you guys? You tell me to do the right things all the time and it hasn't worked for me. This guy said, stand up, carry your mat. And now I'm walking, I'm going to do what he said. Who is this man that orders you to carry something on a Sabbath? But the healed man couldn't give an answer for he did not yet know who it was since Jesus had already slipped away into the crowd. Some people think that Jesus went to this place because there was lots of people there and he did an amazing miracle so lots of people would know him and believe him. But not even the guy that he healed knew his name before he disappeared. I think the location of the miracle is more for us than maybe it was for that man. And I I think he wanted to heal that man. But it's a picture and a message to you some 2,000 years later that says if you want to be healed and free and guiltless and live your life to the fullest and enjoy your life, don't sit under the law of covered porches. Don't try to be righteous just outside of relationship with me, waiting to get things right or to be healed or until you can walk on your own and in your own strength, trying to be good enough. Just trust in Jesus. Trust in the Lamb that came through the sheep gate and His loving kindness that set you free. Stop looking at your current reality and saying this truth, this reality is more powerful than Jesus who paid for this, who paid for my sins, who paid for my sickness. He already healed you. Pick up that mat and walk in him. Walk in this place and leave the place of the law. It's also interesting that he didn't know who Jesus was because before we were born, we didn't know who Jesus was, but he had already done everything that we're talking about. So how can we earn something that's already been completed? It's just an open hand free gift to say, do you trust me? Do you believe me? We've heard a lot in church the word repentance. Repent and be saved. And many of us think that means turn away from my sin and I will be saved. But that's you doing something about your sin. You have to do something, you have to turn around, you have to stop sinning and then turn to Jesus. But when Jesus says repent and you'll be saved, he's saying turn to me I already did something about your sin. You will be saved because of what I did. Believe in me, receive it. That's all you have to do. Just believe and receive in me. Religion in good works says, turn away from your sin, then you will be made righteous. Jesus said, I made you righteous. Turn to me, relate to me, talk to me, and you have already received it. I paid for it. So verse 14 In our story, a short time later, Jesus found the man at the temple and said to him, look at you now, you are healed. Jesus is so cool. He found the guy at the temple, which if the temple represents God in relationship with him, where did the guy go? Before he even knew who Jesus was, Something amazing happened in his life, and he ran to relationship with God. Jesus found him there looking for Jesus because it's the goodness of God that turns people's hearts to repentance, which means turning our hearts to Jesus. It's not the law. It's not somebody telling everybody what you did right and wrong. It's the goodness of God, and Jesus makes the first move towards us. Think about my beautiful son, Oliver, the most amazing child in the world, you know, he tries really, really hard sometimes. I'm like, what, what's going on in that little head of yours? He's squirming, his face turns already. he's screaming, he's crying. All of his best efforts, and then he's, he just poops. And he's like, that's the most effortful thing he has done in his life, is poop when it was really difficult for him. And Jesus says, our self-righteousness, our very, very, very best, is like a filthy rag, kind of like a dirty diaper, Right? It's like, that's it. Just kind of poopy. Not that impressive at all. Nice trying. I'm really proud of you, Oliver, but you just made a dirty diaper. And we can't make ourselves right with God. Not for salvation or, once we're saved, to maintain our salvation. He made the first move. He found a crippled man sick, and then he found him healed. He found him in the temple. Jesus came to us. He saved us from religion, and he loved us. And I love Jesus because he loved me first, because he made the first move. So the second part of verse 14 says, walk away from your sin so that nothing worse will happen to you. Walk away from your sin so nothing worse will happen to you. If you're trying to stop sinning, something that you're like, I'm really ashamed of this, and I'm just going to stop doing that because I know it's wrong. And it's really hard. You just end up doing it anyways, right? The more you try, the harder it gets. You just think about it all the time and you're like, I'm just no different than before I made this big decision. And this phrase from Jesus, walk away from your sin so that nothing worse will happen to you, someone with a self-righteous, works for salvation kind of mindset interprets this as a sin no more phrase like a threat. This is your last chance. If you sin again, maybe next time, I won't be so nice. I won't heal you. I have some threat, and it's like, ooh, Jesus, the big, bad, perfect man, right? But someone with a grace mindset, we people of hope read this, and we see a promise, a gracious promise, that only grace can empower us to say no and live a life of righteousness. Just as Jesus told sick people to be well, he also empowered them to sin no more, A sick person can't heal themselves any more than a sinner can stop sinning. But if someone pays the price for your healing and someone pays the price for your sin and gives that to you as a gift, they've empowered you. Jesus has empowered us to be healed and to stop sinning. It's an amazing gift. And there's something worse than being sick. So Jesus was referring to trying on your own, being stuck under the law, which is death. And for us, Jesus has Life. It's not trusting in Jesus. That's worse than being sick because that means separation from him. So when Jesus healed the man's body, he set him free from having to try to be a good person. He set him free from sin. Jesus went to him, met him where he was at, and then the sick man knew Jesus. Verse 15 says, Then the man went to the Jewish leaders to inform them, hey, by the way, it was Jesus who healed me. He said, this is my ghost story. I was crippled, and now I can walk. I sinned, and now I am free. I was guilty, and now I am shameless. Thank you, Jesus. It was Jesus who set me free. And that's the whole point. We can stop focusing on our actions and trying to be good or bad. We can stop focusing on ourselves and what we can or can't do, what we should have done or could have done, our past or our guilt or our shame. And we can look to Jesus who sets us free. Come on. Come on. Come on. I grew up in church my whole life. I've been going to Hope Church and I love it. I love the church. I love all the Sunday school people, teachers and all the people that have poured into my life and have taught me about who Jesus is Uh, but I didn't always hear everything through this lens that I'm talking to you about now. There was a long time where the narrow gate and the wide gate were like, be good and don't be bad, right? Like obey and be a good Christian. I was trying so hard and I heard like all these things of what to avoid, traps to stay away from, sins to be ashamed of, things you shouldn't do and how to be a good Christian. And I laid under those five covered porches of the law and I felt like I had to be good in order to feel good I had to like be righteous, you know, do the right things in order to be okay with myself and who I am. When I'm alone, when I'm just in my thoughts, to be okay with me, I had to be okay. I had to be righteous. I had to be good, but I messed up a lot and it's not easy to be a good Christian kid. I have sins, I have mistakes, I have things that I do wrong and no matter how much I beg God for forgiveness, I always thought like maybe I forgot something. Maybe I didn't ask for forgiveness for the right thing. I knew who I was. I knew some of the things I had done and what I was capable of. And I say, what if God, like, what if I do something really bad? Then what? I was terrified of that. What if I, like, blew up my whole life and just messed everything up? So I did a lot of things for Jesus, trying to be good, the cost of my health and my family and enjoying my life. And knowing all of those Bible verses, memorizing things and hearing all the stories and growing up in church, it doesn't mean that I received who Jesus was and what he did for me. And it definitely didn't replace knowing him for myself. I used to be really afraid of punishment trying to earn God's love and acceptance. But then I got to know who he really is. And I learned that he loves me more than anyone, more than I know, more than I feel. He loves me so much. I'm his favorite, no matter what I do or say, he won't love me any more or any less than he already does. And I know him. There was this time a long time ago when I didn't exist and God's like, I want a Noah to love. And he made me, he thought of me, he created me on purpose. I know He likes it when I talk to Him, when I worship Him, when I cry to Him, when I yell at Him, when I'm feeling all these things. And when we're relating, I know He likes me. Everything that comes with me, no matter what, He's with me and I have nothing to fear. His perfect love casts out fear. I know Him and He is good, He is safe, and He can be trusted. So we look at Jesus and we stop trying and start trusting in Him. We receive the righteousness that he has for us. We are good. We are set free. We're guilt-free. We have a future. We have loved. And these are all realities that sound like they might be good someday, sometime, maybe I'll get there. But they're realities. They exist right now. They actually existed before you were born. And all you have to do is step into them in faith and say, Jesus, I trust you. So which gate do you enter? Narrow or wide? Let's take a look at the gates again. The narrow one of Jesus, the narrow gate, is his blood, his goodness, his righteousness, his loving kindness, his healing, his peace, his joy, his freedom. The wide gate is the gate of Christianity as a religion, as trying to do the right things. It's the wide gate of the Pharisees who looked good on the outside because they were so focused on what they did that they missed the person and the knowing and the relationship of Jesus and who he is. The White Gate tells these lies, the lies that it's too good to be true, I'm pretty sure I have to stop these things, and I know what they are, before I can relate to Jesus. It's a lie that, you know, I have to be a really good Christian, I have to carry my cross and struggle and suffer every day, and life has to be hard because I'm doing the right thing to be good with God. The lie that says, it's true, I am a failure. No matter what I try to do, I always fail. I'm not good enough for God and I need to work all this stuff out before he will accept me. lie that says, yeah, I have a problem, but I can fix it on my own. I have to before I can relate to him. But the narrow gate says, yeah, I have a problem too, And I can't fix it on my own. And it feels like weakness and vulnerability and saying the wrong thing. But the truth is, I can't fix it on my own. And Jesus, I need you. You're the only one who can help me. The narrow gate's not hard to enter because God has really high standards. He does, but Jesus met those standards. So we don't have to because we can't. That's how good he is. It's hard to enter because we're slow of heart to believe that God could be this good. And we're so quick to believe the lies of self-made religion because it's something we can do. And we love it when we have the control and we say we're doing something to result in something else. And all he wants us to do is rest and relate to him. And we only enter the narrow gate by faith that says, Jesus, I don't got this. I need your help. Everyone close their eyes. And bow their heads for just a minute. Give the person next to you some space. You know, if you lived your whole life trying to be a good person, whether you grew up in church like me or you've maybe this is your first time ever in church, it doesn't matter. We're the same. I want to invite you to start believing in Jesus and start a relationship with him. It just takes a small step of faith. Jesus asked the crippled man at the pool, and now he's asking you, are you convinced that you are already made whole through me. It's easy to take a small step of faith and say, yes, Jesus, I am convinced. Maybe not all the way, maybe not all of me, but I'm convinced enough to talk to you and say, yes, I trust you, even a little bit. Would you help me? And that's enough. So in a minute, I want to pray. I want to talk to Jesus and have you repeat after me. It's not really the words that we say. Again, there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's just our heart that says, Jesus, Jesus, I trust you. I love you. So, if you repeat after me, I love to give you that example. Jesus, I love you. Thank you that you did all the work. Thank you that I can trust in you. Thank you that I can rest in you. Thank you for your blood that cleanses me and sets me free. You are good, you are safe. I can trust you. I receive what you've done for me. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen.